Hi, this is Dr. Karen Horton from Johns Hopkins. We're going to be discussing MDCT imaging of the airways, and this will be in two parts. The first part is going to be discussing the technique and the anatomy, and then part two will discuss the clinical applications. The idea of CT bronchography um, really occurred about maybe 10 years ago, and what it refers to is computer-generated 3D CT post-processing images. And this will produce high-resolution images of the trachea and bronchial tree, as well as endobronchial views. So by endobronchial views, we mean intraluminal views, and that's very similar to virtual a gastroscopy or virtual colonoscopy, where the computer can generate views inside the airway. So that's referred to as virtual bronchoscopy. When you use the term CT bronchography, that refers to a more general term in which you're using CT to look at the airway. And that could be either multiplanar reconstructions, axial imaging, volume rendering, or endoluminal views, which is the virtual bronchoscopy. The virtual bronchoscopy views are the ones that simulate conventional bronchoscopy. So again, it was first really described 10 years ago, but it's just now gaining new interest as a re result of the significant improvements in the computer hardware and software, as well as advancement in our CT scanners. So now that we have multi-detector scanners that can acquire submillimeter collimation, we now have isotropic data sets. And that means that our multiplanar reconstructions of the airway will maintain that high resolution in the axial, sagittal, and coronal projections. And by having sub-millimeter collimation that will also improve our virtual bronchoscopy and our endoluminal views. When we discuss the technique, first of all, you usually do not need to give IV contrast. It really depends on the clinical indication. So if somebody's referred to you for stent patency to see if the airway stent is in a proper position or to make sure it's patent, you probably don't need to give IV contrast. If there is a suspicion of foreign body aspiration, let's say in a child, most of the time you will not need IV contrast. If it's a question of airway stenosis, somebody with difficulty breathing or a strider, again, usually will not need, I need IV contrast. Now, you may want to consider IV contrast in certain clinical situations, such as in evaluating the airway involvement by a malignancy, then IV contrast would definitely help you see the tumor and tumor involvement of the airway. Also, especially in children, if you're suspecting congenital abnormalities such as vascular rings or slings that might be compressing the airway, causing stenosis and stridor, then it would definitely be necessary to give IV contrast. The technique, you really want to use thin collimator settings because you want to have the best resolution that you can, especially if you want to evaluate the peripheral bronchi and bronchioles. So using our 64 slice scanner, we usually use the 0.6 millimeter collimator setting, and we use about 120 kVp. Now for our standard examination, we often use 160 or 200 effective MAS, which is a relatively high radiation dose with a rotation time of 0.5 seconds. But remember, absolutely, if you're just looking at the airway, it's possible to decrease the radiation dose because there's a natural high contrast between the air in the airway and the soft tissue. So this dose can be reduced in children and in adults when dedicated airway imaging is the goal. So if you're just imaging the airway and looking for stenosis or stent or child foreign body aspiration, you can definitely decrease the radiation dose. Now, you don't want to decrease it too much if you're evaluating the vascular structures or a patient with cancer where you really need high-resolution images of the mediastinum and the heart and the lungs. In a study of 23 children with suspected foreign body aspiration, this investigator performed the CT using between 25 and 50 MA, so very low-dose technique, 
and performed MDCT multiplanar reconstructions and virtual bronchoscopy. And you can see in that study, the image quality was excellent in almost 40% of the cases. It was good in 52% of the cases. So the vast majority of cases, the resolution was good or excellent. It was only poor in 9%. So that shows in most of the cases, you're going to get a good quality or excellent quality study, even if you decrease the MA to 50 or less. Now keep in mind, especially in children, you want to have a good study. So be careful. You don't want to decrease the MA too much and get a suboptimal study, which would require you to repeat it and then double the radiation dose. For children, CT bronchography or CT bronchoscopy is actually very easy to do. It only takes a few seconds because our scanners are so fast and usually can be performed even in infants who um, can't hold their breath. It just takes a few seconds and most of the time they won't even need sedation. Now usually, especially in adults, we'll acquire the image at inspiration. In a child, we'll just take what we can get and just have them try to breathe quietly. Sometimes you may want to consider acquiring both inspiratory and expiratory images. So for example, if the patient has a condition called tracheobronchial malacia, and, or they're suspected of having this condition, then you definitely want inspiratory and expiratory. In this condition, the airway is weak, and when the patient um, exhales, the airway can collapse. So at inspiration, it may look normal, but at expiration, there will be narrowing. So it's important in that condition to get both inspiration and expiration views. If there's a, been a lot of problem with stent failure and they can't figure out why, it may be helpful to get inspiratory and expiratory. During expiration, portion of the stent may collapse or bow inward, so that would be helpful. And some people suggest that in patients in which you're questioning a foreign body aspiration, it may also help to get expiration views. Now, for example, if it's a child and you're worried about foreign body aspiration, maybe on the inspiratory views, you don't see anything. So you look in the airway and you actually don't see a foreign body, then it may be helpful to go ahead and do expiratory views. And you may notice that there's areas of air trapping, which is a secondary sign of an obstruction, especially distally. So even though you may not be able to see the exact foreign body by seeing the secondary signs of air trapping, then you would be highly suspicious and you could direct the bronchoscopist where to go. So once we acquire the data, we usually will reconstruct the data twice. One will create 0.75 millimeter slices reconstructed every 0.5 millimeters, and that we will use for our 3D review. So we're going to be looking at that for our multiplanar reconstructions, volume rendering, and the virtual bronchoscopy portion. We'll also do a second reconstruction of 3 to 5 millimeter slices reconstructed every 3 to 5 millimeters for review of the remainder of the thorax. You still need to look at the lungs and the mediastinal structures and the soft tissues, and you really don't want to be looking at 0.75. So 0.75 millimeter slices are for 3D, and the 3 to 5 millimeter slices will be what we review on our packs. Also, you'll need to pay attention to which edge enhancing or which algorithm you're going to be using for your reconstruction. So it's often useful to reconstruct the data in both the high-resolution edge enhancing kernels, such as an 80, as well as a standard soft tissue kernel, such as a 40. For 3D imaging, we send our thin slices to the 3D workstation, and our 3D review usually is a combination of multiplanar reconstruction, so the axial, sagittal, and coronal views, as well as volume rendering, and then our endoluminal fly-through views, which is the virtual bronchoscopy. In this study by Serantin, 
they looked at the precision and accuracy of radiologic findings, and they found that it can be improved if you look at the axial images, the MPRs, and the endoluminal views all simultaneously on a workstation. So you want to have your layout that you can basically go back and forth between the axial MPRs and the endoluminal views. It's very similar to the format we use for virtual colonoscopy, where we have our fly-through views and our multiplanar reconstructions on the same display. So if we see something on the endoluminal views, we can immediately correlate it with the multiplanar reconstruction views. When you're performing surface or volume rendering of the airway, you also have to choose the appropriate thresholds because this will affect the diameter of the airway. If you use the extreme threshold, so the center and windowing of the data, you will change the size of the airway. So as a rule, if you're looking for the central bronchial tree, so the trachea, the main stem bronchi, the lobar branches, a negative 400 to a negative 600 is usually most helpful. If you're going to look at the distal airways, it may be helpful to change your threshold to negative 750, and that will just give you a more accurate view of the peripheral branches. Okay, so now we're going to move on to the anatomy. First, we'll discuss the trachea. It's usually around 10 to 15 centimeters long in an adult. It begins around the C6 vertebral body level which is at the inferior border of the cricocartilage. In most patients, especially adults, the trachea is between two and two and a half centimeters in diameter. And it can be really divided into two sections. The cervical portion is superior to the thoracic inlet, and the interthoracic portion is from the thoracic inlet to the bifurcation, which is also known as the carina. Anteriorly, the trachea is supported by cartilaginous rings, and there's usually between 16 and 20, and these are C-shaped rings, and they're a little denser than the posterior portion of the trachea. In some patients, especially in women, these may calcify, and they can be very dense. Posteriorly, there is no cartilage. There's just a membrane, and this membrane is flexible, and it changes in shape during inspiration and expiration. So if you look very carefully on a scan in which a patient's breathing, you'll see that that membrane is bowing forward and then becoming straight again. So it bulges during expiration and especially during coughing. So here we have some images demonstrating the trachea. The upper image is in the neck, and you can see it's filled with air. Down a little bit lower at the level of the great vessels, you can see the trachea filled with air. This is the esophagus behind it. Now remember, the anterior portion of the trachea is the cartilaginous rings. In this patient, it's not calcified. You don't see that. This image is just above the carina. You can see the ascending and descending aorta, and this is the membrane in the back of the trachea here. Now, moving down to the carina, the bifurcation of the trachea is called the carina, and this happens at the level of the sternal angle. It's usually T4 or T5, and that's where the trachea divides. The carina is actually a ridge formed by the downward and backward projection of the last tracheal ring. So the last cartilaginous ring will form this bifurcation. The carina divides the airway into the right and left main stem bronchi. The main stem bronchi pass infralaterally from the carina into the lungs and are supported also by cartilaginous rings. So again, in some patients, you'll see that these are calcified and you can easily see them out into the main stem bronchi. Both main stem bronchi are accompanied by the main pulmonary arteries into the hyla and then they branch to form the bronchial tree. And the pulmonary arteries are always paired with the bronchial trees. So as you do see the bronchi and the bronchioles, you'll see the pulmonary arteries follow along with them. 
Here's an example of the carina. You can see the bifurcation of the trachea into the right main stem bronchus and left main stem bronchus. First, we'll discuss the right main stem bronchus. This is wider and shorter and more in line with the trachea, so it's more of a direct continuation of the trachea. And because of this, this is the preferred site for aspirated foreign bodies. So most of the time when there's aspiration of a foreign body, it will go down the right main stem bronchus. The right main stem bronchus then divides into secondary lobar bronchi. We have the right upper lobe branch, then we're going to have the bronchus intermedius, which then divides into the right middle lobe and the right lower lobe branches. Now, each of the lobar branches then branches into the segmental branches. So we have posterior, anterior, and apical segmental bronchi of the right upper lobe, and I've listed the middle lobe and the lower lobe. Now, in clinical practice, most of the time it's not that important to identify each of these tiny branches. It can become important if you're trying to guide the bronchoscopist to get a foreign body or to do a biopsy. In those cases, it would be worth you know, pulling out a little atlas and looking at the branching pattern to make sure that you identify the segmental bronchi appropriately. But in most cases, as long as you can identify the upper, middle, and lower lobe branches, that's usually sufficient. So here's an example of the right main stem bronchus. In the upper left-hand corner, you can see the first branch that's going to come off is the branch to the right upper lobe. Next, we have a little segment without branches. That's the bronchus intermedius, which then will give branches to the middle lobe and the right lower lobe. The left main stem bronchus is more angulated and it's longer than the right main stem bronchus. And occasionally, because it's very close to the heart, the pulsations from the heart can be appreciated in the inferior medial portion of the bronchus during a conventional bronchoscopy. The left main stem bronchus branches into two lobar bronchi, because remember there's only two lobes on the left, the left upper lobe and the left lower lobe. So we have a left upper lobe branch, which then branches into the left upper lobe and the lingula, and then we have a left lower lobe branch, and then that gives off several segmental branches. Here's an example of the branching pattern of the left main stem bronchi. Here's the left main stem bronchus, and he's going to give a branch to the left upper lobe and to the left lower lobe. And this is more inferiorly than you can see we're getting these segmental branches. Okay, that concludes part one of this lecture where we discuss the technique and the anatomy of the airways and the technique for doing virtual bronchoscopy. In part two, we'll discuss the clinical applications.